Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Prime Minister Trudeau says Canadian intelligence shows a link between India and the murder of a Canadian citizen. We tackle the Greenbelt debates, why homes cost so much money, the rights of sex workers, dinosaurs roaring into Hamilton, and making your breath mintier. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday afternoon, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau opened the fall sitting of Parliament with a bombshell announcement. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh. Nijar. Nijar was shot outside his B.C. home three months ago, and members of the Sikh community have long accused the Indian government of being behind it. David Aiken is our chief political correspondent with Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, no problem. Good morning. That was certainly um, an unexpected yet explosive start to the fall sitting. The question is, now what? Yeah, it's, uh, this has got worldwide attention, this particular statement. Uh, and, and just to give you the context, sort of what happened since Trudeau made that statement, he made it in the House after question period, immediately followed by um, the statements by the Conservative leader, Pierre Poilievre, um, the Bloc Québécois uh, leadership at the time, uh, Alain Therrien, all expressing solidarity with uh, the government's position. This is sort of one of those times when we put aside uh, partisan activity, all noting that uh, it is vital that Canada, that, that all see this uh, attack uh, as a threat to Canada's sovereignty. Canadian citizens ought to be safe and secure um, on our territory, um, free to say what they wish. And of course, Jagmeet Singh, who is a Sikh himself, the new Democrat leader, uh, gave quite an impassioned speech. Uh, he has been singled out by India on multiple occasions as being a, quote, uh, sympathizer to what India calls terrorists, and this is where we get into the, the big issue now. Just to, for people who want the background, about 2% of India's population are Sikhs, and most of them live in the Punjab, the territory, beautiful territory, up in the northwest of the country. Both Stephen Harper visited there twice, uh, Justin Trudeau has, has visited there as well. And I would say most of the Indian diaspora in Canada are Sikhs. Some are Hindu, but many are Sikh. Um, there's a big Sikh population in Australia, big population of Sikhs living in, in the UK. Um, many of these Sikhs would like more autonomy for the Sikh population in the Punjab. Some would like the establishment of a separate territory called Khalistan in the Punjab. India views this as a very serious threat to its territorial integrity, and uh, this has been an issue going on for years. And the individual killed in BC back in June, uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar was, in fact, a Sikh leader and uh, espoused more autonomy for Khalistan. So you can see this is a very big issue with global implications. The United States, the White House, saying they're worried about this. They're eyeing it with concern because right now India is seen as, the, because it's a democracy, of course, as the West counterweight, if you will, in the region to China's growing um, influence in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, the United States, very specifically, Biden himself has been courting India as a geostrategic partner meet China. Uh, the UK is concerned as well about this for the very same reasons. And in the meanwhile, this Canada-India relations, uh, I can't in my lifetime remember them being lower. Well, I suppose when India developed the atomic bomb back in the early 70s, which was my lifetime, uh, things weren't good because India used uh, technology that Canada, in good faith, gave it. In any event, 
Canada expelled a diplomat yesterday, uh, an Indian diplomat, one of their India's intelligence officers here in, in Canada. And India, in a sort of tit-for-tat move, immediately expelled a Canadian diplomat in India. And that Canadian diplomat, uh, according to Indian media, was one of our intelligence officers. And India calling the accusations Trudeau made, uh, quote, absurd and motivated, motivated presumably because of uh, uh, because Trudeau sympathizes with Sikh politics. No, that's that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> on. This, is, this is a story that's going to be going on for days. Given the geopolitical ramifications that you just laid out, what kind of response do you think Canada is going to receive from its allies? Well, so Canada, we're told that, that Prime Minister Trudeau has discussed this uh, with uh, his allies, with our Five Eyes intelligence partners, for example. So that's Australia, uh, the UK, uh, um, the United States, New Zealand. We're, we're, it, the, there's intelligence gathering about this. Uh, it's very spy versus spy stuff, and there will be further intelligence. Notably, um, in the House of Commons and in statements by our Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, afterwards, We've not been provided with the specific, quote, credible evidence that uh, exists. But Prime Minister Trudeau did meet uh, specifically with Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh, the Bloc Québécois leadership, and presumably provided them with enough um, evidence uh, on a confidential basis that they were they felt comfortable making the statements of solidarity they made. Um, Trudeau today is off to the United Nations. This was pre-planned. This is, uh, as they call, Leaders Week down in New York City, where leaders from around the world come to the United Nations. They tend to make speeches to the General Assembly, participate in a series of meetings, one-on-ones, multilateral meetings. Um, uh, every prime minister uh, has done this. Stephen Harper did it. Justin Trudeau did it. it does it. It's an important week at the United Nations. And certainly this issue with India is going to be now one of the top issues that Trudeau is going to be bringing up, again, with, with, uh, with Canada's allies. And it's certainly going to be something that has got everybody's attention uh, at the United Nations, whenever you have uh, a, a foreign entity, you know, used to be Russia, which would send its spies to kill people it didn't like in other countries. But Russia is quite a different uh, kettle of fish than India, which is, again, it is a democracy, the world's biggest democracy. And uh, certainly uh, it ought to be upholding the, the general international rule of law, which says you do not participate in extrajudicial killings, kidnappings or anything else uh, on somebody else's soil. We'll continue to follow this fascinating story, and David Aiken, our chief political correspondent at Global News, will be on the front lines of doing so. David, thanks for the time today. No problem. Have a great morning. You too. David Aiken from Global News, our chief political correspondent. One thing I've thought about on this issue, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but one thing that popped into my mind yesterday was with all the stuff that's going on in our country right now, with cost of living, inflation, food prices, yada, 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 was this a strategic decision by the prime minister or the the federal government as a whole to announce this on day one of the House of Commons to distract us and everyone else, or at least, you know, shine a light on this very serious issue as opposed to trying to deal with the other issues of the day. I'm going to throw cold water on my, you know, conspiracy theory, but that did pop into my mind for a split second. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, as we know, the Green Belt is a big issue in this community, in this province. City of Hamilton is debating whether or not it will disengage, it sounds like it will, disengage with provincial facilitators who are 
set to manage the development on these local Greenbelt lands. And one councillor in particular said, you know what, I'm going to introduce a motion to have staff stop working with the facilitators and see where that goes. We know it has been a hot potato for the provincial government. If we don't see movement on the parcels that we see that will be under review, that will have to stand on merit, then they're going back into the green belt. The Premier does not care that his government is losing trust, the trust of Ontarians. It's, I think, really shameful. All right, let's dive into this with Jennifer Keysmat, founder of the Keysmat Group, former chief city planner in Toronto, and named one of the most powerful people in Canada by McLean's. Jennifer, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Good morning, Rick. Where do you stand on this whole green belt debate? We know we need more homes. The province says they plan to build 1.5 million over the next 10 years. They've opened up the green belts to uh, much controversy over the way they've done so. Um, how do you see what has transformed or tr- transpired over the last number of weeks? Well, there's a few different lenses through which to look at this issue. One of them, of course, is a land use planning issue. It's a housing issue. And whether or not it is in the public interest to be upending our provincial planning framework, which is really about directing growth to existing built up places that already have infrastructure and protecting environmental lands, protecting agricultural lands, and really curbing sprawl. When the Greenbelt was first created, and it took about a decade to pull the whole thing together, it was really driven by a variety of interests that were seen, quite frankly, from across the political spectrum to be in the broader public interest of the province. So that's, you know, a little bit of the of the backdrop. The real question that's emerging in the past several weeks is really a governance question. <laughs> There's the land use planning piece. We know that this is not something that's being recommended by urban planners. I'm an urban planner. It's not something that's being recommended from a perspective of getting more houses built quicker. The Premier's own task force indicated that there is sufficient land in existing areas with existing schools and transit to meet the 1.5 million housing uh, target that the province has. But then there's also this question around process and good governance. And at a very, very basic level, this is about a government flip-flopping on a promise because they said they would not open the green belt. But it's also about process from the perspective of violating our provincial policy statement and other um, um, governmental processes and really the ethics of, of good governance when you take land and you remove it from uh, environmental protections in order to appease some families and friends who've slipped an envelope across the table at a fundraiser. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a few different lenses at which we can come through this issue, and all of them suggest that we have a very serious, maybe the most serious scandal on our hands that we've ever had in the Ontario context. So let's remove the politics out of this. Just from an urban planning standpoint, building within the city as opposed to extending that boundary. I've always, and I came to this conclusion long ago, I've been a supporter of building up and within. That infrastructure is already there. That development around it and the support network of, whether it's transit or schools, shopping centers, whatever the case is, is already there, which makes it, to me, a lot more valuable to build on those lands. Is there any argument for better out as opposed to better up? 
there's no argument. Um, that's why there was consensus across the political spectrum when the Green Belt was advanced. You can view it through a conservation lens. You can view it through the lens of being efficient in terms of using existing infrastructure. Uh, Toronto is a really good example. We have areas in the city, of course, where we are adding density, but many, many other areas. The vast majority of the city can accommodate more, more density. And this is important because we have transit capacity. We have school capacity. And why would we be building new housing in areas where we don't have transit where we don't have schools, when we don't have water, sewers, sidewalks, when we have that capacity in already already built up areas. So there's the efficiency lens that you can look at this look at this through from an urban planning perspective. There's also the perspective of minimizing our carbon footprint. Uh, it's pretty hard to find a municipality in Ontario that hasn't created a sustainability plan. Even if you look at our most sprawling municipalities now have sustainability plans where they are directing their growth to existing built-up areas. So through that lens um, is a reason why you would not build in your, um, in your green belt lands or your green belt areas. And then, of course, you know, access to clean land, uh, air and water um, are other really critical drivers. We got one more minute. And, you know, we've heard the premier time and time again saying, listen, we have a housing crisis. We have to build 1.5 million homes in 10 years. Would it not be quicker to build on the land that's already serviced as opposed to going beyond our borders? Bingo. It's um, quicker by a long shot. Uh, Some of the lands in the Green Belt and the Auditor General's report, she made very clear it would take upwards of 25 years to drain those lands add very, very basic infrastructure because there's zero infrastructure today. So even from an, from just getting homes built quickly perspective, you know, we should stay out of the green belt. Yeah, that's uh, that's my vote. Jennifer, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Great to chat, Rick. Jennifer Keysmat is the founder of the Keysmat Group, former chief city planner in Toronto, named one of the most powerful people in Canada by McLean's. And you can tell why. The experience is there, the knowledge and from an urban planning perspective and building these 1.5 million homes as quickly as possible it's there's no debate on where they should be built but when politics gets in the way things get messy and it is oh so messy for the provincial government you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml well we just got talking about the green belt and building more homes now Once we have a home built and we have to buy that house here in Ontario, a new report suggests it is the worst place to do so. New report out from MetroVancouverHomeSource.com looked at each province's average house price and median annual income to determine its rankings. And Ontario had the lowest score out of the 10 that it looked at, saying that the average house price in Ontario is a staggering $931,870, while the median annual income is 41690 bucks, It also says Ontario has the highest living costs with high child care, food, and household maintenance costs as well. And while we're number 10 and BC's 9th and Alberta's 8th and on and on we go, number one on the list, the most affordable place, or I guess the best place to buy a house in terms of costs, at least, is Newfoundland and Labrador with an average price of $291,806 to be exact. That is a steal. The question is, what are you going to do in Newfoundland? 
Uh, there's a lot of answers to that. Let's ask an expert in terms of the price of homes and whether or not Ontario is the worst province to buy a house. His name is Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. So, Rob, is Ontario the worst province to buy a house? It is the worst and the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just it, it's very expensive. Uh, our housing cost is very expensive, and uh, it's becoming tougher and tougher for uh, uh, young people to uh, to to purchase, and including the rental, the rent, uh, the rents are becoming very expensive here in Ontario. Now that is the worst part about it, but what is the best part about it? Um, the economic op opportunities. Uh, I mean, we're the, the the biggest populated province in uh, in Canada with uh, over 15 million uh, people that uh, you know that live in southern Ontario. I mean, it's it's the, it's heavily populated versus uh, British Columbia. They're at uh, about 5.4 million, and then the, and then the second uh, most populated. Uh, uh, province is Quebec, which is, you know, uh, pretty well seven-hour, six-hour drive from us. There are 8.8 .8 million uh, people that live there, and it's basically mostly along the border that uh, the population lives. Uh, you know, so we're very close to the U.S. border where the the bulk of the population lives. How did prices in Ontario and in specifically in our area, Hamilton, Burlington, Niagara, how did they get so high? You know what? Um, our education, our health care is really good in this province. Uh, the culture, uh, diversity, people. Um, I mean, we. I think it, it, it's known that we, there's over 200 languages are spoken uh, just in Toronto alone. Um, the quality of life, transportation. We have everything here, and that's why people are moving this way uh, in Ontario. And because of that, it's driving everything more expensive. Um, you know, uh, like businesses, Ontario is the first place uh, most most uh, companies want to set up shop in. When it comes to building more homes in this province as well, we know the provincial government has set a goal of 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. Whether or not we're going to reach that goal remains to be seen. But when it comes to the housing crisis, it's all about supply, right? It is. It is all about supply. Everybody is like all the politicians everybody's trying to figure out a way to do it um they're trying to stop inflation so they're raising interest rates but what's happening is nobody's buying houses especially new homes everybody's sitting on the sidelines and waiting so so developers and builders uh they're not building and now things are kind of at a standstill and immigration is still happening so we're just building up this explosion that's going to happen again down the road and who knows when, but uh, but they're trying to figure a way to to do things. I know they're looking at uh, getting rid of the uh, GST for uh, builders. I don't know if that's going to make a difference, but there is uh, a shortage, and uh, it's it's to be seen what's going to happen in the next couple of years uh, with the interest rates and uh, the shortage of housing. Who knows? We have a couple more minutes with Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rob is the man behind the Golfie real estate show, Hamilton Edition, which you can hear every Saturday at 9 right here on 900 CHML. By the way, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, go to robgolfie.com. Uh, Rob, you made a prediction on the Golfie real estate show not too long ago about another anticipated explosion in terms of house prices in this community. And I think you were pointing to 2026-ish 
on the next yes. big boom. Yes, I feel that in 2026, we will experience the same thing that we experienced in 2021. And in the first quarter of 2027, we'll experience what we uh, uh, in, in experienced in the first quarter of 2022. So um, as an investor or as a homeowner, hang on till then if you want to cash out. But remember, if you're if you're uh, selling and buying at the same time, it, it washes out. It doesn't matter. But uh, I would seriously try to get uh, uh, to own a home prior to then, because I do feel that there's going to be an explosion uh, around that time. And, and, uh, you're, and you're we're just not keeping up to the demand. And there's going to be uh, uh, such a demand at that time that. Uh, everybody, we're going to be dealing with competition again, you know, 20, 40 offers per house. And, uh, and it's just going to be a short period. And, uh, and then again, an adjustment will happen and, and, and then everybody will be sitting on the fence and they're going to probably raise interest rates again, just to slow the, uh, um, the economy down and inflation and everything else. And it's just a repeat of what we're going through now. It does make a lot of sense with not enough homes being built by that time. And let's not forget, over the next three years or so, one and a half million immigrants are going to be coming to this country. At least that is the goal from the federal government, which is going to put another squeeze on supply. Rob, we'll have to leave it there. Great insight as always. Thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you on Saturday. Thank you, Rick. Have a good day. You too. Rob Golfie, sales representative. Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team. Also, uh, the big boss man behind the Golfie Real Estate Show, Hamilton Edition, which you can hear every Saturday morning here on 900 CHML at 9 a.m. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the Ontario Superior Court yesterday dismissing a charter challenge launched by an alliance of groups advocating for the rights of sex workers and that ruled that Canada's criminal laws on sex work are constitutional. So the justice in this case decided that the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, brought in by the former Conservative government in 2014, balances prohibition of, quote, the most exploitative aspects of the sex trade, while protecting sex workers from legal prosecution. And so, for their part, the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform argued in court last fall that this act fosters stigma and and invites targeted violence. It prevents sex workers from obtaining meaningful consent before engaging with clients, and it violates the industry workers' charter rights. Yesterday, they called the ruling, or it called the ruling, incredibly dismissive of sex workers' concerns, knowledge, and intersecting realities. Yelena Vermillion is the executive director of the Sex Workers Action Program Hamilton, Swap Hamilton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Yelena, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me again. What was your reaction to yesterday's ruling? I mean, it's not very surprising. It is, it is certainly disgusting. Um, we, you know... I, I think in this case, the court and Justice Goldstein really, you know, just exemplified the disrespect and the lack of dignity that sex workers are afforded. Um, you know, if you look at the the decision, the evidence provided by law enforcement and the Crown was given a lot more weight. And any of the evidence provided by sex workers and empirical evidence provided by sex workers was uh, provided less value and less weight. And we were accused of being biased, essentially, that our evidence was colored. So, you know, it's unfortunate when, you know, often our stories are only able to be transmitted through qualitative research, that that research, while, you know, legitimate, is is disregarded. Uh, I think it, it just, you know, again, reiterates the fact that the government doesn't value the lives 
uh, or dignity of sex workers. And, you know, under the charter, the government is allowed to violate the rights of some um, on the backs of the rest so that, um, you know, in their false idea, they're protecting these misguided um, and misinformed ideas of gender equality. Uh, ultimately, we will be seeking an appeal. Of course, an appeal can only be made um, in the matter of a question of a fact or the error of law or both mixed fact and law, which I do believe in this case it would be applicable, at least I imagine. So, yeah, we, we're again, we're talking about the right to life, liberty and security, right to equality and non-discrimination, freedom of expression and association, you know. Um, I, when we're talking about sex workers, and, and you mentioned meaningful consent, um, perfect example is street-based sex workers trying to engage with a person in a car. If they're, if you know, in a criminalized context, they're a lot more likely to jump into the car quickly without being able to negotiate those prices or those services that they would agree to with the client. And of course, um, this is to avoid detection and, and enforcement and arrest from law enforcement. So. When you're in a car and you haven't, you know, determined the price or services of what you're going to be exchanging, um, there can they can foster a situation for violence. So that's just one example. Mm-hmm. So you know, we do appreciate you speaking to us today, Rick. Well, I well, let me, you have another question. Let me ask you this: the, the the court ruled that the laws do not prevent sex workers from taking safety measures. What do you? How do you? How do you take that? Well, I think that when you're talking about that, it's an erroneous statement. And anybody can take safety measures at work. I can put on steel-toed boots if I work at a construction site. The difference here is that you're not criminalized for going to that construction site and working as a construction worker. I, as a sex worker, am criminalized for selling sexual services. My clients are criminalized for purchasing those sexual services. And anybody I hire in the, um, you know, providing those services, whether that be a secretary to take my bookings, whether that be a driver to go to the out calls, whether that be a photographer to promote my services via advertising, those are all uh, impugned in the laws, in the third-party laws, um, as well as the other parts of the criminal code. So we're uh, people need to understand that we, this is a labor issue, that sex workers are, you know, are being oppressed by the government, are being oppressed by criminal law. We don't see plumbers and electricians being policed. If you look at other decriminalized contexts, like in New Zealand, which has had a decriminalized uh, legislative framework since 2003, um, <clears throat> you know, the the relationship between police and sex workers becomes a lot more positive because when you remove that conflict in the law, they feel a lot more comfortable contacting the police. And in fact, there was an example in New Zealand where a sex worker and her client, um, they engaged in a service, the client left without paying and she was able to call the police and that police officer contacted the client and said, you need to pay, you know, for your services to the sex worker or you will be charged with extortion. So when that conflict with the law is removed, there actually is more of an opportunity. But until then, we are targeted, surveilled, and harassed by police. And of course, the most impacted Indigenous, Black, migrant, and trans sex workers experience the most harmful impacts of these criminalized laws. And we hope to rectify that and vindicate our rights as sex workers. Um, hopefully through the Ontario Court of Appeal, and if necessary, the Supreme Court of Canada. We got a couple minutes with Yelena Vermillion, Executive Director of the Sex Workers Action Program, Hamilton. In a perfect world, what would you like sex work to look like? I would like it to be treated and legislated under normal occupational health and safety uh, avenues, such as the OHSA and the ESA. Um, if it was re- if the criminalization was removed, we're talking about the removal of all criminal and, and other penalties, such as you know municipal laws, loitering laws are used to target sex workers. Um, 
etc. And we would want to be able to see sex workers, uh, you know, organizing. So right now, if a sec- if more than you know two two or more sex workers come together to share a hotel to reduce the cost of that, uh, you know, renting a hotel room, for example, that's considered a brothel, a body house. That's considered um, a crime. So we would want to see, you know, a full decriminalization. We would want to see um, a change in the immigration and refugee regulation protections. Uh, sorry, the IRPR, because in that all migrants, all people without status in Canada uh, who aren't a citizen or a PR are liable to be deported when entering the sex industry, when when working in the sex industry. And of course, uh, we participated as Swap Hamilton in the Status for All uh, uh, part of me demonstration at MP Philomena Tassi's office recently. And, and of course, if we were to provide status for all, we would be protecting migrant sex workers' rights and removing the police's ability to abuse them and force them to testify against their interests and then deporting them just because they did sex work. Um, you know, international students pay three times the, t- uh, the tuition as a regular uh, permanent resident or a citizen. So um, decriminalized sex work would be protecting a large group of marginalized people, including migrant, black, indigenous, and trans sex workers, and we hope for the best in the future. And we'll vindicate our rights to the law, uh, sorry, through the courts as well as we can. Yelena, we'll have to leave it there. We're plumb out of time. Uh, Good luck with the appeal. We'll continue to follow this story, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much, Rick. Lovely to speak with you again. Have a lovely week. You too. Yelena Vermillion, Executive Director of Sex Workers Action Program Hamilton. Check them out. Uh, Just Google Swap Hamilton. Lots of uh, great uh, analysis from Yelena, as always. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is called an unparalleled and thrilling live arena experience. It is the Jurassic World Live Tour, and it makes its Hamilton debut as it roars in a first Ontario center this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And my gosh, I was on the website earlier this morning, JurassicWorldLiveTour.com. Woo! It looks amazing. Caitlin Traska is a performer with Jurassic World Live Tour and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Caitlin, good morning. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm glad that you can join us today. Tell us about Jurassic World Live Tour. Jurassic World Live Tour is a live arena sun show that takes place between the first and second Jurassic World movies. And it brings back some of the fan favorites you can see from those movies like Blue, the Raptor, and of course the 40-foot Tyrannosaurus Rex. But it also brings in some new characters that you can learn to love, like our lead dinosaur. Her name is Jeannie. She is a Troodon. And that is the first time in any Jurassic franchise that you could see the Troodon. And it also follows a team of heroes uh, led by Dr. Kate Walker. And I have the amazing opportunity to play that role sometimes. So she is very dear to my heart. She is such an intelligent woman. And her goal is to just help Jeannie find her her eggs with her babies in them to get her away from the bad guys led by Kurt Reed, evil in-gen leader. <laughs> wow, this sounds phenomenal. So, and I understand there's like two dozen life-size dinosaurs as part of this show. Yes, so we have over eight species of dinosaurs that you could see in this show, all life-size, all to scale, and they get up close and personal with you, so you're really just thrown in and totally immersed into this Jurassic world. So with, with all the people involved, with all these dinosaurs you know, roaming about, what, what does it take to put this whole production together? We've really spared no expense bringing this show to life, but 
we would do nothing less just to bring uh, this amazing show right to your hometown and let families, kids, everyone just see this amazing experience. And talk about the technology, because this isn't your run-of-the-mill you know, dinosaur um, uh, costume. I mean, these are, these are lifelike. Correct. So we have two types of dinosaurs that you can see in the show, those that are uh, puppeteered by our dinosaurs, and those dinosaurs will be our, our dinosaurs like the raptors and the troodon. Those can be up to 150 pounds carried by one dino tier. Wow. So they are amazing athletes. They carry these dinosaurs, they puppeteer them and bring them to life. And then we have our uh, animatronic dinosaurs that usually take two to three people to operate because we have a driver that drives them. So these will be like our, our T-Rex, our Stegosaurus, our Triceratops. And then you have our animators, which are actually also done by our dino tiers. So they control all of the blinking, the head movements, the mouth movements, everything to bring those to life. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Caitlin Traska, is a performer at the uh, Jurassic World Live Tour, which is coming to First Ontario Centre for the very first time this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. For tickets, go to Ticketmaster.ca or online at JurassicWorldLiveTour.com. Do you play any other parts in this show? Yes, so my main role, I am an engine soldier, so I follow around the evil Kurt Reed. <laughs> but uh, when I'm not doing that, I do get to play uh, Dr. Kate Walker. So which one do you prefer? I think that uh, both of them are amazing. Yeah. My, my main track is the soldier role, and that one is, uh, is very exciting because that one has a lot more interactions with the raptors than uh, Dr. Kate Walker does. She interacts with the Troodon a lot. And the Troodon, she's a much more calm dinosaur. So it's very fun to interact with those raptors because they will snap at you at any chance they get. <laughs> Stay on your toes. What, uh, what can audiences expect? Because there's a lot, it sounds like there's a lot going on here. Yeah, so overall audiences can expect an uh, hour and 20 minute live stunt show. So like I said, we've got the life-size dinosaurs. We have special effects like pyrotechnics. We have motorcycle stunt riders and just so much more that there's always something going on at every time. If it's something you're not sure your kids will like, definitely go on to JurassicWorldLiveTour.com, and you could see just everything that there is. Uh, see if it, you know, it might be scary for the kids with the pyrotechnics. So just, just go online, go onto our website, onto our social media, and just see everything we have to offer. And if this is something your family would love, you did several shows last weekend in Toronto. You have several more coming up this weekend in Hamilton. You've mentioned, you know, performer slash athlete, which obviously means there's a lot of physicality to these roles. How taxing is it on the body? Absolutely. So we are all trained athletes. We we make sure that. We are constantly exercising and working out to maintain our athleticism for the shows. We luckily do have an athletic trainer that travels with us on tour because of how physically demanding the show is. Uh, She's just able to be there and make sure that we're staying in peak physical condition and making sure we're taking our bodies enough to be able to do this many shows every single weekend and traveling around the world. That's amazing. Lastly, what is your favorite part of this production? My favorite part of this production has to be a scene with a big stegosaurus and her baby stegosaurus. It has the amazing track, the John Williams track from the original Jurassic Park movie. And it's that moment, you know, where the big gentle dinosaur comes on stage and all the humans get to interact. And it's, it's just very heartwarming and 
it really brings back that nostalgia of when I was a child watching the original Jurassic Park films. Sounds like a phenomenal time is going to be had by one and all at First Ontario Centre this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Ticketmaster.ca or JurassicWorldLiveTour.com to get your tickets. Caitlin, um, break a leg. Have a great time this weekend. Thank you so much. That is Caitlin Traska, the, uh, one of the performers, one of the many performers at the Jurassic World Live Tour, which is going to roar into Hamilton this coming weekend. That sounds like a dynamite show. If you are a dino fan or not, I'm sure you're going to be amazed and thrilled and entertained uh, this coming weekend. Uh, that's pretty cool. Hey, we also want you to feel the love. Do you know someone who needs a new furnace? Enter the Lennox Feel the Love Contest. Only online at 900CHML.com. One lucky person is going to be given an Elite Series high-efficiency gas furnace and no-charge installation from Boonstrick Heating. That is a $9,000 value. The deadline to enter is September 24th. The winner will be selected September 26th. Fill out the nomination form and get more details online at 900CHML.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. You know, I've had a couple of cups of coffee already. You know, the, the breath isn't as fresh as what it was when I first got up, brushed my teeth. You know, things were going, rocking and rolling in terms of the breath front. Now it's like, eh, well, the coffee breath isn't that cool. But there is a solution. And no, it's not chewing gum. Which brings us to our latest finalist in the Lion's Lair Pitch Competition, which, by the way, is celebrating its 13th anniversary coming up on September 24th with another action-packed pitch competition and gala event bringing together innovation and entrepreneurship. And this month we've been chatting with a number of the finalists. All 10 finalists will be on the show uh, up to and including the week of the 27th. And today's finalist is Mintier. The first ever serum for your mouth. This is quite interesting. Ray Gillespie and Jessica Donati are co-founders of Mintier and join us now on GMH. Ray, Jessica, good morning. How are you? Good morning. We're good. How are you? Not too bad. Jessica, we'll start with you. What is Mintier all about? My favorite question. Um, so with Minty, we're really focused on bringing oral wellness into beauty routines. And that is with the first ever serum for your mouth. We call it a breath serum. And it's the first ever breath freshener that doesn't contain any sugar. There's no sugar alcohols. There's no fillers or additives. So when you actually ingest Mintier, it's super good for your gut. You're going to have that instant fresh breath that we're all looking for. Um, and it's going to just really work. Is this a lozenge? Is it a spray? Is it something else? So we actually just launched um, a new product, which is our breath spray. So we offer it in two different forms, which is in a spray format and then in a tincture dropper format. Okay, cool. Ray, how did you come up with this product? Jess and I actually met working at a corporate office and between commuting and cups of coffee, like you said, working <laughs> long hours, we were having breath mints constantly, but couldn't get fresh breath. So once we looked at the ingredients and realized that the main ingredient was sugar, we learned that that was actually making our breath worse. Sugar feeds oral bacteria and any sugar-free options on the market had sugar alcohols, which people with that, like stomach problems and gut issues have to stay away from. So the only way to make a breath freshener without sugar and sugar alcohols because it's a binding ingredient was to be an oil-based formula. And so one of the issues with things like mints or gums is that the staying power is just not there. I would assume that your product lasts a little bit longer? 
Yes, absolutely. Our customers are saying it gives them fresh breath for over an hour. So you're not getting that same mint gum stale taste after a few minutes. Uh, Jess, tell us why you've entered the Lion's Lair pitch competition. What do you want to get out of it? The community in the Hamilton area is just unmatched, honestly. Um, We were advised to kind of start to um, just see the options that were available. And then we had great mentorship through the program. So we were advised to apply. And I'm so glad we did because we've been able to perfect our pitch and just continue to network in the space. And we're very excited to pitch next week. Ray, after hearing that you were a finalist, what was going through your mind? We were so excited. We actually went to the gala last year and saw everything for the first time. So it's pretty crazy that it's our turn to be presenting next week. I'm sure at last year's competition, you're thinking, we can win this thing. We're hoping so. (laughs) (laughs) What would it mean to win? How would that vault you forward? It would be amazing for us to win because we'd be able to continue our momentum, basically. We want to make sure that we have enough inventory in stock. We have product development for some exciting new products that should come out in 2024. So it would really help to really catapult our momentum. Our audience can get more details on the website, shopmintier.com. That's shop, M-I-N-T-I-E-R.com. Ray, Jessica, not only do I appreciate the time, I wish you the best of luck in the pitch competition. Looking forward to seeing uh, what you two are doing in the years to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ray Gillespie and Jessica Donati, co-founders, Mintier. We've talked... I think every finalist up until this point has been associated some way or another either with healthcare or artificial intelligence. This one is just a product you can use each and every day. And I'm not dismissing the other ones because they're phenomenal inventions and, and business models. This one is, this one's a great one. One of my faves so far in this series of Lion's Lair finalists. And more to come on this front because the Lion's Lair Gala set for September 27th at Carmen's Banquet Center. You can get tickets to that event, buy a table. Lionslayer.ca is the website to go to. And CHML Shona Thompson is going to be hosting the Lion's Lair Post Gala Show September 28th from 9 until noon live at Innovation Factory. Should be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.